0: So we've read the beginning of 1 Kings 8 now. We read verses 1 through 13. And of course now this is the time when all of the work that Solomon and others have done for many, many years comes to fruition with the opening of the temple. The dedication and the beginning of the use of that huge, grand structure. We've read about what it took to build it. We've read about the men who were involved in the work. We've read about the materials that were gathered. We've read about all of the wonderful beautiful decorations that they had, the gold that covered everything. It would be a shame if we got done reading about all of that and all of the work and that we never ended up in a position to see it actually being dedicated and used, right? Can you imagine Spending a couple of years designing and then hiring people to build a house for you and then just kind of, you know, like, oh, that was fun and walking away. No, you want to move in, right? You want it to be used. You want it to be a place where its purpose is met. And that's what we see here. And so... It is a real celebration. You can imagine that the the amount of time and effort and materials that had gone into building this place, there would be a lot of people who were really happy at the dedication, right? The work is finally finished. Now we can dedicate the temple. But of course, all of this is man-centered. This is all true, but why do you dedicate the temple? Why do you have a big celebration in the first place? That goes back to why you built the temple in the first place. You celebrate the finishing of a home because you get to move into it. Right, You celebrate the completion of the temple because it is going to be central to your worship of God and that is what you desire to do. You've built something for the Lord. You dedicate it to the Lord and to His service. Right? Now as we saw... One of the things that happens here is that the tabernacle is retired. So this, if we're, not, if we're not understanding, if we don't remember the history of the worship of God among his people, we might miss some of what's going on here. But the tabernacle had been the place where God first established this kind of structure, if you will. Not one of stone, but one that is physical, one that is earthly, one that is beautiful, one that is among God's people. It says that he tabernacled among them. They all lived in tents, and he also got a tent, and that was the tabernacle. That's what tabernacle means. He also had a A tent. And so he set up camp among them, God, with his people. He dwelt with them. He lived with them. He was among them. And the place where this was most clearly seen prior to the temple was in the tabernacle and in the dedication. Of the tabernacle and of the temple, we see parallels, we see similarities. So as the tabernacle is retired, because remember it says they they brought the tabernacle and then they, they brought all the things that were used as part of worship in the tabernacle into the temple, and that's the end of the tabernacle. They don't need it anymore. They now have something that is even better, the temple. And what happens during this dedication and as the tabernacle is retired is that God demonstrates his approval of the replacement. Now, you might think, well, of course, I mean the temple's better than the tabernacle. David, a man after God's own heart, wanted to build it. Solomon was told to build it. Well, in a sense, yes, but it's not a given. It's not obvious actually because God says, "When did I ever say the tabernacle wasn't good enough for me?" And besides, this majestic, magnificent, huge, beautiful, golden, glorious temple. It can't hold me. Can't hold me any more than the tabernacle can. God does not dwell in tents made with human hands. Or in temples made with human hands. Right? Nevertheless, he demonstrates his approval by what? Well, let's go back and see. It happened, verse 10, that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the lord filled the house of the lord so the temple is now called the house of the lord and what a cloud fills it now i brought up the tabernacle for a reason let's go back and read Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. As they dedicate the tabernacle, here's what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the The tabernacle. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so God demonstrates, again, his presence among his people. But also he demonstrates that, yes, the tabernacle is done. The temple has replaced it. Yes, my glory will now dwell here. My presence will be among the people here and one of the beautiful things about this is it shows that the people aren't moving around anymore that's why they lived in tents at the time that the tabernacle was built and so they would move and they'd have to move the tabernacle with them but now they have the promised land their rest has come and so what happens They can build a permanent building. And what do they do when they're done? They sacrifice. They sacrifice to God. And at that time, all of the sacrifices pointed forward to the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who was yet to come, the Messiah. These sacrifices, as we read in Hebrews, were not able to atone for the sins of the people. But they pointed forward to the one sacrifice that ultimately would atone. But they don't just sacrifice, they sacrifice so much that it was uncountable. Who's keeping track? Eh, who can keep track? Just keep sacrificing. Keep giving back to God what He's given to us. Who's worried about how much it is? Well, I might have hit 10% by now. So what? Keep sacrificing. Keep giving back to God. All of it is from him. But isn't it interesting that even the sacrifices had to stop when God's glory fills the temple? The thick cloud came. And just as Moses wasn't able to enter into the tabernacle, so we read here the priests could not stand to minister. And Solomon says, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. Like, hey, this isn't a surprise, or maybe he was surprised, but it's like, hey, I remember. We have God's words that have come before. God said he would dwell. And here it is. That matters. When you're dedicating a temple where your hope and expectation and joy is the fact that you'll be able to worship God there. And then God gives you the sign that he has said will be the sign of his dwelling presence. You know what you do after that? You sacrifice more. (laughs) You celebrate more. You give thanks more. Now, let's back up a little bit. There's another connection between the tabernacle and the temple. And that connection... Is the Ark of the Covenant? Now, the Ark of the Covenant, we we don't talk about probably all that often. It's been uh, it's been missing for a long time. Ethiopia claims they've got it. I think that's probably uh, well. Let's just say doubtful. Because the, the story about how they got it was that Solomon's son, that you never read anywhere about in the Bible, that he had with the queen of Sheba, took it and flew it there on a flying carpet. So, doubtful. Nevertheless, The Ark of the Covenant, other than it being a thing of myth at this point, right? Like, there's movies about it. There's stories about it being in Ethiopia. There's, you know, other than that, what do you know about it? What can you tell me, kids, about the Ark? Do you know anything about the Ark? Can you tell me anything about it? It was hollow. It was, it, was a, it was empty. It was a box, right? So there was an opening inside. What else can you tell me? Yeah. Covered with gold. Yeah. When David tried to transport it, a guy, what was his name? What was his name? Who knows his name? Uzzah touched it. And what happened to him? He died. That's right. What else can you tell me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have things inside it. The Ten Commandments and the manna and Aaron's rod or staff that blossomed. What else can you tell me about it? Anything? Yeah. That's right. It was in the back of the tabernacle. What was the last part you said? Yeah, you couldn't go back into the place where the Ark was kept. It was separated from the rest of the tabernacle. It was kept there. And we see the same thing here. The the Ark is moved into the temple, and it's moved into the Holy of Holies. It's moved into the very back. And that the priest would only go there once a year. Okay, you had one. Go ahead. Did you, you want to tell me something? The stone tablets. That's right. The stone tablets were what the Ten Commandments were written on. One more, yeah. Thank you. There were two cherubim on the top. What's a cherubim? Yeah? An angel. Well, actually, a cherubim is nothing, cherubim is the plural. I tricked you. Cherub, a cherub is an angel, yes. It had wings that overshadowed the ark. And do you know what that top of the ark was called? I said one more, but does anybody know what that was called? Yeah. The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Okay. Now there's a reason that the ark has taken. If we if we take all that stuff that we just learned about the ark, I mean, yeah, the ark, right? There's a reason that it has taken on mythic ideas, right? That 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 it's this. It's lost. It's disappeared. People die when they touch it. It's covered in gold. It's beautiful. It has, these, it has these things in it that are amazing. The stone tablets were tablets that Moses had. So it goes way, way, way back. And what was on those stone tablets were God's law, the Ten Commandments, given to us. There's an awful lot of symbolism in the ark. And and we don't have the time to do an entire sermon on the ark and and all of the things that we can learn and be taught in the symbolism of the ark. But I wanted to just point out A couple of important things from that. Because here we have the ark brought into the temple. And it's sort of the central thing, right? Until the ark is brought in, God's presence hasn't been brought in. Because it is in the mercy seat. That he dwells Leviticus 16:2 says the Lord said to Moses tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die I think you had it right he'd die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, of course, it's not until the ark is brought in that the dedication is complete. Yeah, it's built. Yeah, it's finished. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, they're, they're going to sacrifice, but until the ark is brought in, it's not done. Think about the way that the temple is built. Think about the, the structure. You've got these outer courts, everybody's allowed in. You, you work your way further and further in, and it becomes holier and holier, more special, more set apart, right? Until you get to what? The Holy of Holies. Separated, right? From everything else. And what? Is the Holy of Holies empty? No. The ark goes in the center. And you've got the angels that have been built into the temple, right, that stretch the length over the ark. Everything focuses down to that one point everything focuses down to that right there the arc so yeah you realize this is pretty central isn't it this is pretty important and what do you have at the center a box and it's closed. And then you find out what's in the box. And what does it say in our passage was the only thing that was in there? Yeah, that's right. God's law was in the box. All of the beauty, all of the majesty, all of the size, all the glory, focuses in and in and in and in until what are you left with? God's law. That's what you're left with. At the very center of everything, you have the Ten Commandments. The stone tablets given by God to his people. Written on stone. In a box that if you touch it, you die. In a room that if you enter it, you die. Surrounded by gold. And above it, the mercy seat. God reveals his mercy and his law at the very center of his worship here, doesn't he? Ever think about the fact that the mercy seat was right above the law? The mercy seat sat right above the Ten Commandments. And when they're brought in, God enters. When they're brought in, God's holiness is revealed a cloud fills the temple so that the priests can't even minister anymore everybody's forced out why for the glory of the lord filled the house of the lord god shows his glory god shows his glory in his presence. He shows it in a way that everybody can see. And he shows it not because the building is magnificent. He shows it because his law and his mercy have been made central to the worship of his people. his law, and his mercy. And all the rest of it is meant to point to that. We get very confused and think it's all about the majesty of the building. We get very confused because we think it's all about our sacrifices. Think the sacrifices are without number. And I could probably preach a whole sermon just on that, right? But it's kind, of just a, it's kind of just a throwaway point, actually, when it comes down to it. Because you know why? To obey is better than to sacrifice. The law is at the center. And God's mercy. Our gifts back to God. Our tithes and our offerings. They're nothing. They're His already. What can you build for me? I'm God, He says. Today we live under a new covenant. a new covenant. And now instead of going to the temple and to the tabernacle where God's law is at the center and the mercy seat over it, today we have the Holy Spirit within us. God dwelling, not just among his people, but within our hearts. But you know, there's some things that haven't changed between the first covenant and the second covenant. Jesus Christ came Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now think about the law being written on stone. And now think about Jesus Christ. The law made complete. Made perfect in Him. No longer written on a tablet of stone, but fulfilled in Him and then written, inscribed onto our hearts. If the Holy Spirit dwells within us, has the law left? No. The law is written on our hearts. It's still central, isn't it? We must write His law in our hearts. I want you to recognize that in the New Testament, We're told not to defile our bodies because our bodies are temples of the holy God. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons not to defile your body. There's a lot of reasons that are very practical. It's not good for your long-term flourishing. To defile your body, right? But why are we told that we're not to defile our bodies? And what are we told will defile our bodies? It is not the food that you eat that will defile your body. And anybody that tries to make what you eat into what that is talking about, is doing violence to Scripture. Your body is a temple. Therefore, you are to remain sexually pure. That is what will defile your body, joining it to a prostitute. Here we have this glorious dedication of the temple. The law being brought into the center. God's presence coming. And now we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells among us, within us. And the question is, what does it mean To dedicate our temples. If you have become a Christian, your body has become a temple. What should you do? The first thing is, write his law on your heart. Write his law on your heart. Now that does not mean rote memorization. It means much more than wrote memorization. You have written it only on your mind and your tongue if you have memorized it and you have not begun to obey it. To write it on your heart is to love it. To write it on your heart is to keep it. Now, What else does it mean to have your body be a temple? Well, I've already alluded to this and talked about it a little bit. Must be holy vessels. Holy vessels. Pure and undefiled. We read from James 4, verses 4 through 8. You adulteresses... Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. What is that talking about? You being a temple, the dwelling place of God. His Holy Spirit within you. Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's hard to just pull those four verses. I tried to narrow it down as much as I could so we don't have two scripture passages I'm preaching from. (laughs) But think about this. He's talking about what it means to be a temple, and he says, Purify yourself. Purify yourself. Live according to his law. And then he says, He gives grace to the humble. And then he says, Purify your hearts, you double minded. What does it mean to be double minded? Like, if you want to have both the ark in your temple and Asherah in your temple, you want to have God's presence in your temple and also whatever idol you happen to love that day in your temple. Double minded. Can't make up our minds. Is there any hope for those who can't make up their minds? Well, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let them be devoted to God. I want to think about the body again here, okay? Because just as in the Old Testament, we had that beautiful, beautiful building. So today, we have beautiful, beautiful bodies. And it's easy for us to focus on our bodies, right? The beauty, the gloriousness of the human body is real. So is the beauty of the temple. But the temple isn't to be worshipped. And it's never to become the point. I think it's a great example of being double-minded for us to worry about purifying our bodies rather than worrying about purifying our hearts. So, if we have the Holy Spirit within us today, rather than in a thick cloud, dwelling above the mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies, separated from us, now instead given to all Christians without measure, we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. We must purify ourselves. We must write his law on our hearts. We must submit to him and resist the devil. And we must realize that just as in the Old Testament, the law went together with the mercy seat. So it is God's mercy that allows us to have the Holy Spirit within us without being struck dead. You think about what you deserve. Set apart 30 seconds now and think about the idea of the thunderbolt from heaven. Striking somebody dead for something that they've said, right? Now think about someone who has God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in them, and then the thoughts that run through your head, the desires that you feel and that you give yourself to, and that you lust after. And you think, the people who entered into the holy place died. The people who touched the ark died. It's not crazy to think about being struck down, is it? And that was not people who had the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Is it not a mercy to God that we have not been struck down? Let alone the fact that we never deserved to have His Holy Spirit within us in the first place. What a mercy it is. It is the seat of God's mercy. Now, there's one last thing I want to say, and that is the obvious nature of God's presence in his temple. Okay? Is there anything equivalent today? At at Pentecost, you had the rushing wind, the tongues of fire. Speaking in tongues. And it was obvious. Something had changed, right? The Holy Spirit had been given. But there were those outward, external, obvious signs. Is there anything obvious that the world can see God is dwelling among his people today? I've given some thought to the, this week. You know, there's probably a lot of ways to answer that, but I think that the best way to answer it is love. They will know that we are Christians because of our love. They will know that God is present among us because of our love. And won't it be obvious? Won't it be obvious if we love God? Because why? Because we'll say, disobey Him? Why? I love Him. Won't it be obvious if we love one another? Won't the world be able to see? Won't it be as clear as the dark cloud descending? In fact, won't it be much more clear than a dark cloud? Hasn't there been a great change from the old covenant to the new covenant? No longer is it God's presence in a dark cloud, in a room. It's spread throughout the whole world. No longer in a dark cloud, but in us. What a beautiful gift.